Take your Bibles, turn to the book of Matthew, where, we'll, where we have been and where we'll continue to be for a few more Sundays, God willing, as we talk about the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached. It was preached by the Lord Jesus Christ toward the front part of His, early part of His ministry. This morning we come to a new section. It's uh, in, in the little booklet that I gave out, that section is called Worry-Free Living. Worry-Free Living. That kind of sounds like something I'm putting a positive spin on, I know. When you see the, that expression, worry-free living, you think that might be a, the title of an article in a good housekeeping or guidepost magazine or maybe an advertisement for some kind of retirement plan. No, I'm not putting a spin on anything. I'm just going to share with you what God's Word really says and what we can and should be able to experience. God wants us to be free of anxious care. That doesn't mean that we'll not have any heavy burdens. Sometimes we'll go through burdens and trials that are too deep for words. We only share them with those closest to us. We are walking through a veil of sorrows. We live on a fallen, cursed earth. And we're frequently reminded of that, aren't we? We are pilgrims and strangers here. This is not our home. Our citizenship is in heaven. Our motivation is spiritual. Our perspective is eternal. The glory we seek is divine. The praise we crave is of God, not man. And so when we talk about worry-free living, I hope you're not thinking anything along the line of Joel Osteen's happy talk in his book, Your Best Life Now. No, if, if that's true for you, if your portion is only in this life, you will be of all men most miserable when you come up empty at the time of death, you'll be in for a rude awakening. We need to lay up treasures in heaven. That's what the message is all about. I hope God will impress upon us some important truths. I won't be able to forget them soon. Verse 19, verse, um, yes, verse 19 is where we'll begin. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, where thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And then a couple of verses that are not quite as readily understood. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. Verse 23, but if thine eye be evil, Thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If, therefore, the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon, wealth, possessions, money. Jesus here gives us the right 
to, as you've heard me say, have a heaven to go to heaven in. Even as he drew near to the time of his own ascension, his death, burial, and ascension back to heaven, what did he bequeath to his disciples? It's amazing. He gave them his joy, his peace. What a legacy. And he means for us to keep that through the end of the church age. Now he shifts his focus from the subject of personal piety before God, which is what he's been talking about in the foregoing verses in chapter 6. He shifts that to the practical matter of living in the world, but still living unto God. Reminds us of the maxim, and I hope you don't think it's trite because it's true. Believers are in the world, but we're not of the world, right? We're in the world, but we're not of the world. Now, so far in Jesus' teaching here, the main enemies that he's mentioned or alluded to that we face in trying to maintain a uh, life of piety, especially a personal devotional life, the main enemies are our own flesh and Satan. But there's a third enemy that every Christian has. I think you know who it is. And so now Christ introduces that third enemy that we face, and that is the world. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Remember what Jesus said in his great high priestly prayer. And well, I'm getting so excited. I've been meditating on John 17. One of these days I'm going to have to, I'll bust if I don't preach on that passage. I know Brother Jason Spruill did a Sunday school series on it. Brother, if I steal your thunder, forgive me, but I've got to preach on that. It's just bursting in my mind and heart. John 17, the true high priestly prayer. Jesus said there in verse 15, He said, Father, I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. Evidently, it is possible for us as believers to triumph over the world, even while we're in the world, just as Jesus did. You know what the secret is for doing that? For being kept from the pervasive evil that is in this world? It's being satisfied with Jesus. Satisfied with Jesus. I've heard farmers talk about a contented cow seeks no greener pastures. A contented cow seeks no greener pastures. I think we could say that about the Christian. A contented Christian doesn't seek any greener pastures in the world. You know, the cure for worldliness Strangely enough, it's not anti-worldliness. It's not opposing the world. It's not anti-worldliness. The cure for worldliness, are you listening, is other-worldliness. Once you've tasted heaven, the slop of this old world just loses its savor. We sing about that, numbers of songs. The one that comes to my mind is the great hymn we often use at invitation time. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. And this being satisfied with Jesus is the mindset begotten of the Holy Spirit in the heart of the one to whom the Spirit has revealed Christ in all of His saving fullness. But you know, the problem with a lot of people who profess to be Christians, but you wonder if they've really been saved, They haven't gotten sick of the world yet. 
When you really get sick of the world, you want to regurgitate it. You don't want more of the same old slop. And it bothers me to see some believers, professing believers, even some at Friendship Baptist Church, who want to keep one foot in the church and the other foot in the world. They want to experience a little bit more of the kicks out there. Let me ask you something. Do you have to go rummaging through a garbage can to know that it's garbage? Do you have to experience the world to know that it has no attraction for you? It cannot satisfy you? Can you not just take God's word for it to not have to find out the hard way that the world has nothing to offer? I'm saying that to some people that are bound for colleges in a few days. Even Christian colleges, you can backslide at a Christian college. One of the easiest places to backslide. You know, it's interesting, whereas Christ issued no commands about the matter of fasting, which was the last thing we talked about, He does make issue some commands here, several in a row, about our stewardship. Whenever I preach about stewardship, I inevitably make the comment that God greatly proves us in the matter of our stewardship of money, our material possessions. The New Testament is full of references to it. If a man is not faithful in the unrighteous mammon, Jesus said God will not trust him with the true riches. Well, let's unpack these verses. They're loaded, okay? The first thing I want you to see is the principle stated. The principle stated there in verse 19, the first verse of this passage, is lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth. The emphasis here is not upon those words lay up, but on the word treasures. We see stories and we read precepts in the Word of God about laying up in this life in certain instances. God ordained in His marvelous providence that the Old Testament patriarch Joseph would store up or lay up in Egypt tons of grain during the years of plenty to keep millions of people alive during the years of famine to follow. Saving for the future is not necessarily hoarding in a wrong or faithless sense. The Bible talks about the ways in which we should do that. So again, the emphasis here is not on laying up. Notice an important definition, treasure. What is our treasure? You've heard it said, and it's true, one man's treasure is another man's trash or vice versa. Now, the word treasure can be pretty ambiguous to some people, but it's not to God. And Jesus wants us to know exactly what He means here when He says, lay not up for yourselves treasure upon earth. The late great preacher A.W. Tozer, who's still read widely and, and quoted, it's amazing, though he died in 1963, uh, he's not like other men who 
perhaps were more well-known in, in their day, Tozer is still quoted. He said a lot of quotable things. The late A.W. Tozer suggested four basic questions to help us identify what our treasure is. Maybe you can jot this down quickly. You have to be fast. I don't have it on the, on the screens. Number one, what do we value the most? What do we value the most? If your house were to catch fire tonight and you barely had a chance hastily to grab some things and what, what, what you could hold on to on your way out, what would those things be? Would it include your Bible? Secondly, what would you most hate to lose? That kind of tells you what your treasure is. What would you most hate to lose? Thirdly, what do your thoughts turn to most naturally, naturally and frequently when you're free to think of what you want to? You don't have to be thinking about something else. That's a pretty good indication of what your treasure is. Fourthly, what affords you the greatest pleasure? The greatest pleasure. What do you value the most? What would you most hate to lose? What do your thoughts turn to frequently when you don't have to be thinking about something? And what affords you the greatest pleasure? Now, treasures may not only be money and physical possessions. Treasure can refer to relationships and things that are of sentimental value, though they may not have any monetary value. I've met some people that if they lost an autograph of Elvis Presley or Mickey Mantle, they would be destitute. Often our treasure is an extension of our pride, not just our love. It can be love of honor, love of prestige, love of status, love of a vocation. But the common denominator of all those things is they have a statute of limitations. They have a shelf life. They're temporal. They're earthly. They're going to pass away. They don't last for eternity. You can't send them on ahead. So I ask you, what is your treasure this morning? Is it really Christ? Are you willing to count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of knowing and savoring Him? I'll probably ask you that question again before we finish the sermon. Is Christ your treasure? We need to understand what the word treasure means. Secondly, we need to note an important clarification, and that is those words for yourselves. Jesus did not say it is a sin to lay up for yourself something. Isn't that amazing? Because he goes on to say, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. So evidently, it's not selfish to do that. The Apostle Paul told Timothy that those who were rich but generous toward others were laying up for themselves a good foundation against the time to come. That's in 1 Timothy 6, verse 19. The Apostle Paul told the Corinthians that the parents there in the church at Corinth ought to lay up for the children and not vice versa, not the children for the parents in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 14. In a very touching way, Paul felt like these Corinthians were his beloved children he looked forward to imparting unto them in spiritual ways something when he came to them again. And he expected that whatever he imparted to them would accrue to his own account in heaven someday. When you read 
the way he referred to it. So let's face the issue squarely and honestly. God expects us to act, are you listening, out of our own enlightened self-interest. Yeah, you heard me correctly. God expects us to act out of our own enlightened self-interest. Lay up for yourselves, Jesus says. We're not just, the, the, the qualification there is we're not to seek gain at the expense of others. Aren't you glad that our God owns everything? He really does. That's the first principle of stewardship. Aren't you glad that He can bless both you and the person that you give to at the same time? Aren't you glad that there's not just a a finite amount of of matter and wealth that Jesus has and and He just has to distribute it different ways at different times like some kind of divine Ponzi scheme? No, 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 no. God's math is not like ours. Maybe you've read through the great book, Pilgrim's Progress. If you haven't, I sure hope you will soon. But in that great allegory, John Bunyan says, there was a man, though some did count him mad, the more he gave away, the more he had. Was it wrong for that man to receive God's blessings? No. Because God could trust him not to hoard them or to scheme something at the expense of others, but to be a channel to others. An important clarification there, lay up for yourselves. But there's an important prohibition here. Jesus says, don't lay up treasure for yourselves on earth. Don't lay it up on earth. Why is that? I'm not telling you anything new, but we sure need to revisit this again and again and again. Why is that? Everything on earth is infected. Everything on earth is subject to the curse of the fall. Moths eat our clothes. Rust oxidizes metal and makes it disintegrate. Thieves break through and steal. Even gold tarnishes. One day it will burn up with fervent heat, as the Bible says, when this earth is renovated. Yes, this old earth has a shelf life. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth. Would you look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4? If you'll turn there quickly, we'll keep your finger there in Matthew chapter 6. We'll be back. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. Peter writes to persecuted Christians, and he reminds them a lot of the things that cannot be taken from them, the true value of them. Verse 4, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. The corruption of all earthly things. Everything earthly is corrupt. It's got a shelf life. It's going to decay. Amazing. I I don't give my wife flowers as often as she would like for me to, but occasionally I do. And I came home the other day and found those flowers in the trash can. I didn't have a hissy fit. You know why? They were freshly cut flowers. And they begin to wilt at the moment they're picked. 
Everything on earth is fading. It decays. It rusts. It rots. It spoils. Now we know that. I'm not telling anybody anything new this morning when I said that. But yet we're so slow to recognize it. We act like we're going to keep our houses and our cars forever. Now, I don't want to burst your bubble, but I'm sorry. That car that you have set your heart on that you think is the coolest thing on the top side of God's green earth, that depreciates significantly, significantly by the time you drive it off the lot. They used to say $1,500. I think it's far more than that. Notice the important injunction here, and that is, whereas we are not to lay up for ourselves treasures upon earth, Jesus says, in effect, in the very next verse, but we could put the word do, do lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust doth not corrupt, where thieves do not break through nor steal. This is expressing the truth positively. The only safe place to invest is in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Those words are used interchangeably in the Gospels. And you know what? We ought to be aggressive about that investment. Some of our investments in retirement, you know, we have to spend. The older we get, we can't be quite as aggressive. But you can be aggressive about laying up treasure in the kingdom of God. Oh, if God left one unregenerated thief into heaven, our, our investments are safe there. If he let one unregenerated thief into heaven, no doubt he would try to chisel up those transparent gold streets and sell it on the black market in hell. But heaven is a place where there shall enter in nothing or no one that defile it. You've heard it said, and it's a true adage, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. Now those words exactly are not found in the Bible, but the point is, the words that Jesus used inspired of the Holy Spirit, Spirit were these, and I say unto you, make yourselves friends, in Luke 16 verse 9, a very important verse, make yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness. So we know what that word mammon means. It means our wealth, our money, our material possessions. Make to yourselves friends by means of the mammon of, righteous, of, of unrighteousness, by the way that you use your money and your material possessions. Why? He goes on to say that when ye fail, that's the King James wording that's unfortunate. It means it, the money, not when ye fail. When it fails, the money that you use even wisely. They, who's they? The friends you've made by the right use of your money. They will receive you into the everlasting habitations, the eternal tabernacles. Our money, beloved, is sure to fail, if not before, at the moment of death. There have been people in this church who have wisely, prudently set aside for their retirement, and yet things that they could not have foreseen have happened and devoured those assets through no fault of their own. Our money is sure to fail, if not before. It's going to fail at the moment of death. But listen, the souls saved by the witness of the missionaries that we've helped to support or through the tracts and the printed sermons and the podcasts and videos that, that we have helped to give out to, to people in places where we cannot go, that's not going to fail. 
Those people will be standing on the other side when we get to heaven, ready to hug our necks and receive us into the eternal tabernacles. That is a guaranteed return on the investment. Inflation cannot touch it. The digital currency change won't affect it. The IRS cannot freeze it. We really need to think about that more often than we do. Again, I say the only safe place to invest is not in the Cayman Islands where I used to be for a long time. They got more banks than any place I've ever seen. Just a little shingle on a wall, most of them. Safest place to invest is not in the Cayman Islands. It's not in the Bahamas. It's not in Switzerland. It's not in Panama. It's in the kingdom of God. Lay up your treasure in heaven. Because the only currency that is legal tender in heaven is faith. God doesn't recognize dollars and rupees and rubles and pesos and francs and marks. They're not acceptable. They don't work in heaven. Author Randy Alcorn, by the way, who, as far as I'm concerned, has written the greatest book on stewardship. has been out for a while. Probably needs to be revised. Maybe he has. But Money, Possessions, and Eternity is a great book. I wish you'd get it in your library. But he, in that book, he gives a, a hypothetical illustration that really makes my point. He says, imagine that you're alive at the end of the Civil War. Or some of you would call it the war between the states, okay. You are a northerner. You have, you've been doing business in Dixie, and you've accumulated quite a bit of Confederate money, but you intend to go home after the war, and you see the handwriting on the wall. You know that the Union Army is about to win. What are you going to do with your Confederate money? If you're smart, there's only one answer. Find some way to exchange that Confederate money for a good old U.S. currency. Keep only enough Confederate dollars to meet your short-term needs. May I remind us all, beloved, the currency of this world will be worthless when Jesus comes again. And if we really believe that, it will affect our investment strategy. That's the principle stated. Secondly, I want you to see the reason cited. Why is Jesus so adamant about our stewardship? About investing in the kingdom of God instead of the things of earth? Does he fault us for having a nice home? No. Or a late model car? No. Even a boat or a membership at the golf club? No. Some of the godliest men in the Bible were extremely wealthy. Abraham, Job, David, Joseph of Arimathea, to just name a few. And as I pointed it out, the Bible does not say that money is the root of all evil. That's often misquoted that way. 1 Timothy 6, verse 10, it says, the love of money is literally a root of every evil. That's what that means. And Jesus said, it's rare to find a rich man whose heart is not set on his riches. 
And so God cannot trust many believers with wealth. The most appropriate prayer for most of us will be the prayer of the the wise man Agur in Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 and 9. It wasn't Solomon that said this, it was Agur. He said this, remove far from me vanity and lies, give me neither poverty nor riches. Not many Christians pray that. Feed me with food convenient for me, that is, the food for my portion, lest I be full and deny thee and say, who is the Lord, or lest I be poor and steal and take the name of my God in vain. The issue is what? The issue is the heart. Jesus hits the nail on the head here in verse 21, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. A man's treasure reveals what? It reveals his trust. Show me your bank statement. Show me your credit card statement. Show me your receipts, and I'll show you where your heart is. Someone has said, and it's true, a man's religion is his reliance. And your heart will follow your treasure. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. That's why the rich young ruler, who is recorded in several of the account of of his encounter with Jesus is recorded in several of the Gospels. That's why he ended up, the Bible says, going away from Jesus sorrowful. He went away sorrowful. He, he came with the brightest of hopes and expectations. On the surface, it looked like he was so sincere. He came to the right person. He came to Jesus. He asked the right question, good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? The Bible says Jesus beholding him Loved him. Jesus loves everybody, but there's something special about this young man. Just really touched the heart of the Son of God. Jesus beholding him, loved him, but he didn't say he didn't save him, and he didn't say, Oh, what a fine, upstanding young man you are. You know why? He knew his heart. And his possessions were his God. And when he said, Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Some Christians have the wrong idea because we understand that salvation is by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. We've got Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 all memorized, probably verse 10 as well. That's great, wonderful truth there. But some of us have imagined that Jesus was rebuking this man for a works-based dependency as if to say, you've got it all wrong here, young man. Salvation is not by doing, it's by trusting. No, no, no. That was not what he was saying. Salvation is by grace, it is by faith, it is not by works, but that's not what Jesus was saying here. And when he said, what thing shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus did not say, just "Just believe on me, just here, just call on me right now and, and I'll save you. There's a reason Jesus didn't do that. Jesus knew what this man's problem was, his greed. The idol of his heart was mammon. And so Jesus masterfully, oh, we could learn so much from the master soul winner here, the way of the master. He went for the jugular. He went for the heart. He took this promising young man, this rich young ruler as we know him, at his own ground, this young man had said, all these things have I kept from my youth up when Jesus quoted the last five of the Ten Commandments. Don't covet, don't steal, don't kill, don't commit adultery. Honor your father and your mother. He said, all of these have I kept from my, well, well, had he really? 
Was he really telling the truth? Has any man alive always perfectly honored his father and his mother? Of course not. But isn't it interesting Jesus did not take issue with him? You seldom hear this, folks. We understand this story on such a superficial level. Jesus took him at his word. He didn't argue with him. He didn't contradict him. He said, in effect, okay, if you really love your neighbor as yourself, which is the summation of those five, the last five commandments that Jesus quoted to him, if you really love your neighbor as yourself, you won't balk at just giving away your possessions to your neighbor. Come, take up the cross, follow me. Nothing to it. Piece of cake. But this man had a grand problem. He was unwilling to do that. He loved his possessions. He had great possessions. And that was where his heart was. And he went away sorrowful, without salvation. Could I ask you, where is your heart this morning? Is it where your treasure is stockpiled? You can't just add Jesus to your portfolio. You can't just add Jesus to yourself of God's. He must be Lord of all or He is not Lord at all. Some people hesitate to say that, but that's scriptural. If He's not Lord of all, then you're going to have to scratch two verses from the book of Isaiah that say He will not share His glory with another. And the Bible says in Romans chapter 10, verse 10, it is with the heart that man believeth unto righteousness. It's with the heart. It is true. Some people are going to miss heaven by about 18 inches. The difference between the average distance between a man's head and his heart. Because some people know all the facts. They've got it all straight up here. They can tell you the plan of salvation. They can quote the verses. They know the Romans road. But they've never had a heart transformation. And Jesus is not number one on their list. My wife's favorite song is, I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. Can we honestly say that? Take the world, but give me Jesus. I'd rather have Jesus than anything. I was reminded of a man who came to this crisis when my wife and I were coming back from the little island of Cayman Brack where my missionary mother-in-law was, we stopped on the larger island of Grand Cayman where I was a missionary for 19 years. And we met up with the man who was my right arm there, first man I baptized. He's been here before. He's sung from this pulpit. He's played the guitar, Philip Bodden. Philip's almost as old as I am now. <clears throat> He was the best guitarist the island ever produced. He only has one good ear. He's got a deformed ear, but boy, he sure developed that, that ear. I mean, his playing by ears beyond anything I've ever heard. He never did anything else but play a guitar and sing. He dropped out of school at 13 years of age, learned to play the guitar, the big entertainer on Grand Cayman at the time saw his value, and the, this entertainer wasn't much of a musician himself, so he was just a businessman, so he capitalized on Philip's talent. 
And Philip played in the nightclubs for the hotels. But then he heard the gospel at Calvary Baptist Church. And he couldn't even wait for, till Sunday to get saved. He came out to where I was living, 45 minutes away from where he lived. And he said, I need to be saved on a Saturday night. I said, Philip, well, I know what you do for a living. I said, do you think that scene pleases God? He said, no. He said, I'm turning in my notice. And when he turned in his notice to the American businessman, entertainer, this American businessman, George, said, you've never done anything else, Philip. I'll keep this spot open for you for a stated time. I think it was three months. You'll come crawling back to me. That was 35 years ago. He, he hasn't crawled back. And Philip Bodden started retuning his guitar to sing the praises of Jesus and play it in church. But before he did that, he came to me and he said, Pastor, with tears in his eyes, if I have to give up music altogether, though it's the only thing I've ever known, I want Jesus. Let me ask you this morning, how badly do you want Jesus? I didn't ask you how badly do you want heaven because no man in his right mind wants to go to hell. But many a man wants to go to heaven, but he wants to go for the wrong reasons. The Muslim man wants to go to heaven so he'll have 72 virgins and he can indulge his lust. You can go to heaven for the wrong reasons, but unless your heart is changed, you'll be perfectly miserable if you were to get there. Famous American poet is James Whitcomb Riley. One of his most sentimental poems, I'm not crazy about it at all, it's called The Life Lesson. It's remembered for the last two lines. These are the last two lines of James Whitcomb Riley's famous poem. Heaven holds all for which you sigh. There, little girl, don't cry. And people read that poem and get all weepy and sentimental about it. That's not true, folks. Heaven does not hold all for which you sigh unless you sigh for holiness and unless you sigh for conformity to the image of Christ and unless you sigh to see Christ in His glory, you're not going to be there. You'll have to settle for some other kind of heaven. Are you willing to forfeit all for Christ? There's a principle stated, there's a reason cited, but in this passage, there's a warning issued. In verses 22 through 24, Jesus talks about two kinds of eyes and two kinds of masters. Would you look at that again with me? Verse 22, the light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. Verse 23, but if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness. We'll read verse 24 in a moment. Here Jesus draws a contrast between a single eye and an evil eye. 
What did he mean? Let's be careful here. Someone has well said the, the eye is the window to the soul. That's true. Jesus is simply talking about the way we look at things. What is the single eye? Listen carefully. The single eye is the eye of the spiritual man that sees things clearly the way they really are as created by God and to be used for God. That's the clear eye, the single eye. What is the evil eye? Oh, I think sometimes we really are, have this meaning obscured in our minds because we half-jokingly say to somebody, don't give me that evil eye. An evil eye in the Bible is not some malicious, curse-causing stare. We talked about this back when I preached through the parables of Jesus and that parable of the complaint of the laborers in Matthew chapter 20. Remember the setting. I don't ask you to turn there for the sake of time. We're almost done. But Jesus gave a parable here about a number of day laborers who were hired and they worked a different number of hours in the day in the same landowner's fields. At the end of the day when there was the reckoning for pay, they all got the same pay. Some had worked 12 hours, some had worked nine hours, some had worked six hours, some had worked three hours, some had worked one hour. And they all got the same pay. And so those who had worked all day in the heat grumbled against those who'd worked just one hour. And our Lord gave this inspired comment through the words of the landowner. It's so instructive. He said, is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? And then he said this, is thine eye evil because I am good? There's the evil eye, folks. In other words, are you jealous because I am generous? We need to check our hearts to make sure we're not like the elder brother in the parable of the prodigal son. Oh, he got all bent out of sorts as he told his dad, I, I've never transgressed your commandment at any time. I've served you all these years, but you haven't made thrown a party for me and killed a kid, and your wayward son, your prodigal son comes home and you throw a big party. He quickly construed the father's generosity to be unfairness. We need to deal with this, all of us folks. Our outlook on others tends to be controlled by our love of earthly things. I'm going to be honest. I've seen this happen. and this may, If this fits your situation, nobody tattled on you. I did not read your email. I have not eavesdropped on any conversation. But I have known situations where siblings who were once close, very close, they have a falling out because of jealousy over how the inheritance is apportioned. Let's ask God to deliver us from that. Christ warns us against that here. Is thine eye, is thine eye jealous because my eye is generous? But then he warns also not only against greed, but he warns against the deception of a divided loyalty as we finish with verse 24, but if thine, I'm sorry, no man can serve two masters, verse 24, 
For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot, it's an unqualified pro- prohibition, ye cannot serve God and mammon or wealth and money at the same time. You're going to have to choose between loving God or loving riches. They both demand all or nothing. There can be no truce. There can be no peaceful coexistence between the two. What is the great commandment of all? Jesus said it, quoting from the book of Leviticus, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. The key word is all. And so I challenge you, as Elijah did, the nation Israel on Mount Carmel, how long halt ye between two opinions? If Jehovah, if Yahweh be God, follow him. But if Baal, who stands for all the mammon of unrighteousness, if Baal be God, then follow him. Choose you this day whom ye will serve. And we could add the inspired words of James, the writer James, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Maybe this message is more uh, of a warning than therapeutic, but I'm, I would venture to say at least one person, maybe more, needs this message today. The choice that Jesus gives us could not be more stark. Two kingdoms, two destinies, two kinds of treasure, two masters. Is that master Christ? Is that treasure Christ? Oh, that determines everything. Let's pray. Father, help us, everyone, to examine our hearts honestly before you. Help us to make sure that Jesus is our treasure, that we can honestly say, my Jesus, I love thee, I know thou art mine. For thee all the follies of sin I resign. Take the world, but give me Jesus. Lord, let there be no evil eye of jealousy and greed. Let there be no divided loyalty in us. If we're trying to straddle the fence and hold on to both at the same time, would you bring conviction and repentance right now, I pray. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.